Hello and welcome to The Blueprint by Ballymore, the podcast that looks at how we can build better cities, speaking to urban innovators from around the world. I'm your host, journalist and broadcaster, Jonathan Openshaw, and in this week's episode, we're looking at how we can not just survive in the urban jungle, but thrive too, finding a more balanced approach to holistic health and well-being in our hectic modern lives. Now, city living comes with endless advantages, from business opportunities to world-class culture, but one of the historic hitches has been health and well-being. From higher pollution levels to more stress and less exercise, we're all familiar with the worrisome statistics. Indeed, the World Health Organization has declared urban pollution levels a public health emergency, with 91% of city dwellers currently living in areas where air pollution exceeds guidelines. The old mantra of work hard, play hard has also done damage, with busy urbanites abusing their bodies throughout the week and then trying to make amends with a power hour at the gym. The good news is health and well-being are now a central focus in new urban thinking around the world, with governments, architects and planners putting it front and centre. Indeed, at Mill Harbour, it's one of the core principles of Ballymore's new development, with vast areas of parkland and a fully grown forest stretching along an active waterfront, not to mention generous fitness suites, well-being zones and outdoor pools. To get a more expanded understanding of health and well-being, I kick off this week's episode by talking to chef, food campaigner and author Melissa Hemsley about the transformative power of home-cooked food. This is what I think people want. Conviviality, bonding, community and all of those words is what everybody's saying what they want their new world to look like and I know you know what we're chatting about here is it's a neighborhood it's a community. I spoke to the UK CEO of Barry's Bootcamp Sandy McCaskill about how a community-based fitness model can boost well-being in more ways than one. The other three happy chemicals like uh, oxytocin, serotonin and dopamine you get them you get them all in this like concoction in this one class where you get the camaraderie the feeling of like being around other people. And I chatted to Tom Smith of Space Hub, the landscape designers at Mill Harbour, about how access to green space is a vital resource for staying healthy in the city. I think nature gives us a lot for free that we take for granted, you know, whether it's clean air, food, um, and we've just been accepting that that's, that's free, but actually we need to understand, re-understand, relearn the relationship that we have with nature. You are what you eat, they say, and as with all old adages, there is considerable wisdom in those words. Chances are, if you live off a diet of snatch sandwiches from generic chains, then you'll end up feeling a little bit limp and soggy, whereas a home-cooked meal shared with loved ones can have a restorative power that lasts for days. This is the mantra of chef, food campaigner and author Melissa Hemsley, who uses seasonal and lovingly prepared food as a way to connect with the important things in life. Friends, family, sustainability and personal well-being. This is a very different type of health food to the familiar format of fistfuls of goji berries and raw juices, but is more about bubbling pots of home-cooked curries or platters of sharing salads plucked fresh from the soil. I started off by asking Melissa how she sees food as having a transformative power in everyday well-being. I feel that the more that people get into food and cooking... By, by food, I mean home cooking, home, homemade food. The more they get into it, the more that they're invested in it and the more that they want to understand it. And I think that in the past, growing up certainly as a 34, almost 35-year-old now, um, it was very much 
you know, you just, you know, this was something to eat, this was something to not eat. Growing up, no one explained it. My mum certainly didn't have time to teach me. No one taught me how to to eat or cook. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, wow, I, I know that cooking food and from scratch makes me feel really good. So I want more of that. Where do I go and get the information? And I think, I don't know if I'm showing my age, I feel like, I'm, I, about to say, I feel like we're similar ages, but I might be offending you there. Um, but, you know, it is now something that me and my friendship groups prioritise. We, we, we invest way more time in the shopping of, we talk about it way more. It, it's become so much more personal and shareable too. So I think this, this element of getting to know food and getting to know the effect it has on your body and listening to like working out what feels good you know a lot of people just go let's all eat the same um and at different times of the month at different times of the year uh, it's different for all of us so uh, tapping into that and just going does that does that is that what i really want to eat right now so you know maybe later i'll be plucking a courgette off uh, off the courgette plant which sounds really um good life but you know i've got a garden in east london and the slugs love my courgettes and i have no idea what's going on and i'll probably get one courgette the whole summer but that to me feels really really good and on a sort of top to toe tip to toe level that i feel you know food is so emotional too so 360 wise it's it's a vegetable yes it's a courgette it's in season it's green tick 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 but i've made it i've grown it i don't know how i've managed to get it there but I will enjoy it because of it. And I think such a big thing about eating well for me is the smells, the the preparation of it all, my body getting ready for it, the digestive juices going. And then a big thing that I've been working on, especially over the last six months, is taking the time to enjoy eating because I think that's a big one. We're, we're all busier than ever, blah, blah, blah. We know all this. And I sometimes feel, and, I'm, and I, I feel it for myself too, is I go to all the effort of sourcing an ingredient. Is it fair trade? Is it ethical? Is it seasonal? Is it organic? Great, great if I can get all those things. And then maybe I'm just rushing it and just chowing it down as I read a stressful email. And, and then I'm sort of, I'm not, I'm not putting myself into some sort of emotional debt, but I'm not getting what I need out of it. So I think that is a big thing. So I know you talk about feel-good food a lot and um, there's massive advancements recently making the connection between um, gut health and mental health. The idea that you can almost, you know, literally eat yourself happy. Is that what you're kind of exploring with the idea of feel-good food? Are you going so far as to make that connection between um, between what you eat and your kind of mental well-being? Mm. Well, it's food certainly has a part to play. It's definitely not the be-all and end-all and it's just one of many, many things we can tap into and get to know better. But it's certainly an amazing place to start because we we eat three times a day, don't we? It, or more. And it's it's definitely one way that we can look at it. I did this series of events that I just long to be able to do again in real life called the Sustainability Sessions. And uh, they the whole idea behind them was how can we together collectively get to know how to, we can make the world a better place. And one of the uh, themes was mental health and it was about sustaining um, a positive relationship with our mental health, be it uh, investing time into it. All of these things are about making time for these things. And it's the one that sold out the fastest. And we had Bryony Gordon and Matt Haig and Paul Nabel. And what we talked about, and we talked about everything, but we certainly, all of us kept coming back to the importance of food and you know if you can finding the sort of meditation within food which sounds really annoying uh as a as a concept perhaps to some people but you know like I say to myself you know what um I'm gonna 
I'm going to cut cut up these carrots for this soup and I'm just going to really focus on it. Um, you know, I'm really anxious today as an example. I'm gonna, just going to really just let let this soup take over and maybe I'll put on a podcast or something. But it, I, I, take, I take the action and like the act of putting my phone down to use my hands to touch food as a really grounding way to be. So I think that's a, if you can, if you can be into that, that's great. Certainly some of the times, uh, if I'm in a rush or something, I, I don't want to listen to that type of advice. <laughs> you know, it's always different, isn't it? But I do find if I really try and enjoy the cooking process, I can find a, a relax, a relaxingness to it as well. Another thing I know you're a huge advocate of is the power of food to kind of bring people together, the idea of kind of feasting, uh, lavishing food on friends and family. Is that kind of convivial nature of food? Is that something that also, you know, in this well-being context, is that something that food can really give us, that human contact, that kind of social boost um, that you get from bringing people together around, you know, a home-cooked meal? It very much is. And I love the word convivial. It's such a good word. Why don't we use that more? It's a really, really good word. Well, you know, I don't know about you, but uh, people have been over the last crazy six months, you know, one of the things that people have loved doing together is watching each other eat, you know, or being together on the end of the phone as someone cooks. I've seen loads of people, you know, really get back or or for the first time perhaps really get to know their roots, where their parents are from. And certainly me, one of the ways I've loved getting to know my mum, who's quite a private person, is by, you know, constantly asking her about Filipino food, like, teach me this, teach me that, when did you eat this? And I've seen loads of people, you know, un- get get tutoring from their mum, for example, online and, and over the phone, and, and found that such a wonderful way to get to know parents or their roots, as I say, or their culture. This is what I think people want, conviviality, bonding, community I do these events these online events too called the feel good sessions and they're about comfort connection and community and all of those words is what everybody's saying what they want their new world to look like and I know uh you know what we're chatting about here is it's a neighborhood it's a community and that's what people want and uh, adding to that if we trace back the food you know food's delicious we cook it together we're sharing it online or in real life we're putting it in our mouths it's making us feel good la 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 but if we trace it right back to who's grown it I think that's a really great thing that um, has come over the last six months is all of a sudden our whole food system completely top went topsy-turvy I think mo- lots of us have never appreciated our corner shop our online delivery our veg box anyone that's got food and I think that's brought out a real sharing nature there's a, there's a great app called Olio which I know has was always doing well anyway but it's all about if you've got extra food let someone know and they can come pick it up and that sharing with strangers like we we, we're not like food is the instant way to break uh you know break the ice and finally i know you've got a new book out at the moment eat green um are you trying to bring together all the different strands of this work then you know from sustainability to health to well-being to all this kind of stuff we're talking about is that coming to a culmination in in your latest book well ultimately you know uh, the book world is is sort of like, you know, are you a cookbook or are you a something else book? So 
I wanted people to just be able to open up the book and have, you know, 100 plus recipes of really delicious food that they could eat. And, you know, those that felt like, oh gosh, let's not be worthy. Let's not talk about food waste. Let's not talk about seasonality. I don't have time for all of that. I just wanted them to have a really good range of amazing home cooked family foods. But on the plus side, I hope anyway, and I have had some really lovely reviews and positive, um, you know, positive book sales and happy booksellers and all the rest. Gosh, that sounds very braggy, but I'm just, you know, it seems to be going all right and being well received is that people are loving the um, philosophy being woven in throughout. So there's always a user up tip, a waste not want not tip. You know, can you swap this recipe that's relevant for right now with a winter veg come winter time? Um, it was really lovely to get uh, people like Hugh Fernley Whittingstall and Sky Gingle, you know, celebrated sustainable chefs um, and have great cover quotes from them. And, you know, proving, and they've been doing this for the last 30 years and proving that people really do want more from their food. You know, they want they want to understand the field. Circling right the way back to what we talked about right at the beginning is it is possible to, to, to let's not over obsess about food let's not overthink it but at the same time we can be more thoughtful and we can make it it can it can always be fun it doesn't ever have to be a hardship to eat lovely food that's in season that feels really good that's not wasted so that was melissa hemsley talking about the transformative power of simple mindful convivial eating which she also explores in her new book eat green out now We talked about the importance of community there, and few fitness brands have proved as game-changing in this area as Barry's Bootcamp, often credited with kicking off the whole fitness community craze, where health clubs become as tribal as private members clubs, and fitness merch is worn with as much pride as designer labels. This focus on community has been just as key to the runaway success of Barry's as the brand's legendary workouts set in a red room of pumping club music. By offering a sense of belonging as well as physical exercise, the brand aims to ease that sense of dislocation that many feel in cities, helping to boost mental well-being as well as physical health. In recent years, they've also partnered with mental health charities such as Human to help provide solutions for mind, body and soul. I spoke to UK CEO Sandy McCaskill and started off by asking him about the relationship between physical and mental health. People always talk about the endorphins, right? But actually, I think if you go and do a workout like Barry's or anywhere where you have a community, right, you have your endorphins, obviously, because you're pushing yourself through an experience and your endorphins like the body's response to basically trying to keep you going. But then there's so much else at play. So, you know, the other three happy chemicals like uh, oxytocin, serotonin and dopamine, you get them. You get them all in this like concoction in this one class where you get the camaraderie, that feeling of like being around other people, like dopamine where you set yourself a challenge and you just go and do it. It could be like a 30 second sprint. I'm gonna run this 30 second sprint and I'm trying to get to 10 miles an hour and you do it and you get this feeling of like achievement or whether it's anticipating, like going to class. Like people always talk about the fear of like, I'm on my way to a class and you get that kind of like fear, but also, but last week I did this and this is what I'm gonna do now. And again, it's that kind of like, you get, you get buzzed before you even go. People come to a gym for one thing, more often than not, it's to look better or feel better or whatever. And it's usually a physical thing, but I think um, they stay for something completely different. Um, and it's usually mental. 
So as our cities grow then, and as people are looking for more ways to stay healthy, you know, in all meanings of the word, from physical to mental health, do you think that fitness brands and health clubs and gyms, do you think they're going to become kind of vital community resources rather than being seen as a kind of nice-to-have additional extra? I remember having a conversation with a, a property development massive massive real estate owners basically in London own a huge amount of real estate and we were trying to pitch them an idea which was a kind of a fitness village going let's have a barriers let's have a yoga place let's have a spinning place let's have a I don't know healthy co- cafe or whatever and I was trying to pitch and I literally was, went into this thing I was like trying to bring in other brands like I, that these other brands by the way did had no idea I was trying to do this they they're probably like we don't but I was just going why don't you get these guys in and we'll come we'll come and be like the linchpin for it and they were like, no, no. Fast forward a couple of years, that's what everyone wants to do. And I was like, oh, okay, now you, now you finally get the idea that this is a good thing. Like, it's a place where a community, like, people don't just want to bury. They want to, all right, you do the barriers. Now, now you want to go and do some yoga. Now you want to go and um, have a nice, healthy uh, bite to eat rather than, like, a prep or a pub or whatever. Fitness, whether it's a barriers or whatever it is, is a huge, it brings a huge amount to a uh, community. It brings like-minded people together. It makes you feel good. You go into a gym, you come out of it, you're in a great mood. If you then see a shop, you're like, oh, I'm going to go in, go in there. And you're not, you're not head down, right? You're head up and you've been talking to people and you've been experiencing something. You're immediately more sociable. It only is a good thing for people to do. And I think you put that at the heart of a development or a, an urban space in whatever form it is. And it doesn't have to be barriers, but whatever form it is, it's only a good thing. And I, and I think that it, the mood is changing and it has changed, actually. Um, I want to be down on the, the landlords. Like they've, they've, they've changed a lot in the last few years, um, which is a great, great thing. OK, so moving on to the elephant in the room now, obviously, you know, gyms and uh, fitness centres were hit very hard by the global pandemic. Um, they experienced some of the longest lockdowns um, in the UK of any business. Um, and I know a lot of people, um, you know, not, not least Barry's, pivoted very quickly to online classes, uh, to using Instagram in new ways. Um, and digital actually seemed to be a really exciting, thriving area of health. What's your view on that looking um, to the future? You know, is it all about getting people back in gyms? Is it all about tr- um, moving classes online? Is it a blend of the two? So... As a business, yeah, we've had to pivot and we've had to adapt and we've had to do various things to keep keep it alive. Um, and in fact, I should want to talk about one thing. I think um, alongside the the Instagram lives and the Zoom classes, we like our staff are incredible and they totally buy into this whole. We talk about being a family, but this the community that we have, um, and they were like volunteering their services to our clients. So we weren't just offering out Instagram classes or whatever. It was like meal plans, or we have like a lot of our front desk staff are actors or actresses or dancers or singers or whatever, um, hugely creative. And they were doing bedtime storybooks for our clients, kids. And like, just like the most amazing things that have nothing to do with fitness, but to do with like our community. Um, and I, you know what, funny enough, I think that's one of the things I'm probably most proud of in the entire time we've been doing barriers is, is that rush to actually contribute they weren't getting paid anything for it. Had nothing to do with our actual business model, which is fitness. It was we just want to help, and what? How can we use our skills? And so, like I'm like saying, like a desker who's a singer, how or a dancer, how can I use my skills to enrich or help 
members of our community get through this and make it better. And they were doing, doing all this stuff. And I was like, that's probably the coolest thing that we could possibly do. Um, and, we, we, and we put a name to it. It's called Barry's Cares um, to give it a structure and a kind of a, a program to it. But it doesn't come from a structure. It literally came from members of our team going, what can we do to give back and how can we do it? I'm um, looking to the future of, of Barry's, but I guess of health and wellbeing in general. What's your kind of vision? How do you see this playing out? How are our kind of, how are we going to be staying fit in our kind of busy urban lives? There's obviously been a move to virtual training and online training. And I think that, that the doors have opened. Like the, But I'm not saying the floodgates. I just don't think that's right. I think people who are already used to an experience like Barry's will go back. And in fact, the studio's been rammed, like the, the, the sellouts, you know, all classes sold out. I think that people really still, again, value the experience of being in a place. But I think where it will change the industry as a whole will be the fact that people who were going to the gym on their own or had a very different experience, so didn't have access to a place like Barry's, but had a, you know, a media, there are lots of mediocre places out there and we're going to a mediocre place with not much community and whatever, have now seen something else. So I think the kind of like the, the, the boutique community driven places will continue their main focus of work, which is the studios or the gym or whatever it is. That'll be the thing. There'll be an online offering to cater for people who can't get there, who have now discovered it and like, oh my God, I didn't even know that a place like Barry's existed, but now I'm part of this community. And if, for example, Barry's like re- reopens the Red Room Studios and then just goes, right, done. We're not doing it online anymore. Those people are now homeless, right? They haven't got a place. So I think it's very important for us as a responsibility that we have now to keep that going, to provide a place for the wider community that we've now got. But I think that's what it is. I think for Barry's itself, it's a supplementary thing. It's a kind of a thing to go alongside. That was Sandy McCaskill, UK CEO of Barry's Bootcamp, looking to the future of holistic health. Now, well-being is a major focus at Mill Harbour, with extensive gyms, fitness suites and even an outdoor pool, meaning that residents have a range of amenities on site. One of the biggest health-boosting innovations, however, is the landscape itself, with extensive parkland, waterfront and even an urban forest providing plenty of flexible space for residents to take in nature. The masterminds behind this urban oasis are landscape designers Space Hub, and I spoke to founder and director Tom Smith about what sets the approach apart. We started off by discussing the overall importance of having access to nature in the city. I think nature gives us a lot for free that we take for granted. You know, whether it's clean air, food, um, and we've just been accepting that that's, that's free. But actually we need to understand, re-understand, relearn the relationship that we have with nature. And so I think um, that, that coupled with uh, the, our busy lives really it just in, it increases the importance of, of nature. And I guess the, the density of use of the way that we use landscape and outdoor spaces so that they should be multifunctional, they should change and they should be flexible. Um, uh, and I think if you look at any park in London, for instance, um, from when it was actually designed, you know, some of them hundreds of years ago, and then see where they are now, they've changed enormously. Um, communities have dropped in playgrounds, memorials, different types of planting to fit with the style. So they are evolving things and, they, and we should see them as, as a kind of not particularly fixed, but actually um, they can evolve with our lifestyles and the way that we've, um, we develop as people. So looking to Mill Harbour now, how did you take this kind of flexible approach uh, and apply it to the actual development? 
I think we broke it down to sort of three key areas, which is sort of it, sort of a sense of uniqueness, intimacy, and a level of self-containment. Um, and I think that that created in our minds a landscape that wasn't just homogenous. It wasn't a, you know as if you were kind of trying to mark an estate, but it was kind of it was, I suppose. Uh, celebrating the difference in spaces and scales so that people could find um, their place. They could find somewhere they could gather lots of people or somewhere you could hide away and read a book and everything in between. Um, I think that was really important for us. A sense of discovery, effectively, uh, as you move around the space, but also uh, a sense of ownership um, and a feeling that you could have an impact and and perhaps change and evolve the space um, through time. Um, For instance, there are these big raised sort of terrace plinths, uh, timber plinths, which have alcoves in which can fit a class in for exercise. So you can fit a class there and uh, you know, have informal, um, informal classes and teaching. Equally, there's one end of it that could be a, a very informal stage. Um, and obviously people can sit around and sort of socialise and sort of drink and eat on this, on this thing as well. So it's just very simple ideas that can be flexible, I think, um, and appeal to different people at different times of the day. And one of the standout features of the landscape for me is this forest, um, which has been brought in kind of, you know, a big, ambitious forest of mature trees, um, quite unlike anything that I've come across, I think, in London before. Can you say a bit about the thinking behind that and why that's going to be such an important amenity for residents? Yeah, I think it's this... um, I think the forest is funny because the forest is is the first thing we've delivered. Um, And it's now... The idea is now sort of... Re, um, has actually influenced the rest of the scheme in the sense that we've really um, tried to increase the amount of trees and mature trees. And we always see it as a sort of a way of decompressing as you come home, you know, as you move through this, this landscape. And I think uh, most people agree with me who actually stand in it, they almost feel your heart rate drop. Um, and it's just that idea that it's calming and it's, and it's, this, it's not work, it's not Canary Wharf, it's not, um, it's not that, it's about coming home. So moving through this lovely, uh, very, very natural landscape is an idea that now we actually have little um, mini forests all over the all over the scheme, really, which have been to sort of do that that job as well. So it's it, it forms that function, but I think um, it also has the ability to change in, uh, as as the scheme evolves. So you know it's it's in its basic form. I see it now, but as the second phase, which it will be adjoining. Um, comes online I could see it changing I could see it having more play elements in it I could see there have been more educational elements in it and more um, ecological elements in it as well you know things like um, uh, bird boxes bat boxes and um, uh, insect hotels we call them as well a big log pile so I can see the kind of the whole thing changing and turning into kind of got a useful educational element it also has a, an actual function as well which is sort of hidden which is about um, attenuating rainwater so when heavy rain falls it can actually soak up and absorb lots of water um, so there's kind of a multifunctional aspect to it, but I think it's it's a statement of intent a little bit as well in terms of um, of, of being this counterpoint to um, to the to the sort of scale of architecture around here. This, this moment when you can't see any buildings. <laughs> so the forest is a key natural amenity. The parkland another. Obviously, waterfront is something that the Docklands um, has a lot of, as the name suggests. Um, But I think it's fair to say that in a lot of other developments, it's not an active waterfront. It's shut away behind kind of, you know, pontoons or barriers. Um, You know, people can't really get at the water. The approach at Mill Harbour is quite different, isn't it? Could you say a bit more about, you know, what the, uh, um, the kind of landscape engagement with the waterfront is here? I think we've got big ambitions about the water. I think there are lots of... um 
challenges with it as well in terms of things like safety, water quality, that sort of stuff. But I think in, initially there's um, a boathouse which is being built next to the um, forest which is going to house some small um, canoes and things like that that people can hire to actually get engaged with the water. Um, we'd love there to be a floating swimming pool out here, but I think there are certain challenges with that. Um, but I think we keep pushing for that. Um, and I think, yeah, so it's about engaging with water, and even the design cube itself is actually sitting on the water. Um, there are plans for a, um, a walkway which actually floats outside, out, outside of the design cube around that. So it's about getting people to engage with it um, and also increasing the amount of planting um, that's actually floating on the water. So we've been working with a, um, with a specialist company at looking at um, actually floating floating wetlands effectively. So I think it's, it will be an incremental approach, but I think it's very, you know, it, you can, people are drawn to it. And I think it's an incredibly important feature. So the fact that we're actually getting people out, you can actually hire a boat or hire a canoe or something and, and go out into the water is, is fantastic. So overall, would you say the approach to landscape at Mill Harbour is about creating kind of very active landscape lots of different environments that can be used for you know whether it's yoga whether it's crossfit whether it's using the water is that is that kind of the philosophy here that it's not just a visual oh, amenity yeah, it's so. something to get out into yeah i th- i think yeah as i said before the increasing the density of use meaning that we can more people can use more of the space and keeping it really simple actually so a lot of the sort of geometry and the design is actually really simple it's actually quite orthogonal and um, very efficient but a lot of that is really about um, making sure we're spending money on trees making sure that we're um, we're really creating fantastic facilities so we have a um, sort of multi-use basketball court which is typically something that sort of gets tucked around the back because no one really likes it but actually here it's sort of front and centre so you see that kind of activity as being really energising um, a space it's very similar to New York so you get a New York and they're playing basketball and they're really active lively places um, and just by creating a bit more space at the edges and some seating you can turn it to a much more social um, type space uh, huge amounts of play for children um, as well as just really simple open spaces that are flexible we can't we can't imagine everything that's going to happen here or what sports trend might be around the corner so it's important just to create simple flexible spaces that people can use in different ways That was the founder of Space Hub Landscape Architects, Tom Smith, talking about the extensive, flexible and health-boosting landscape at Mill Harbour. And that's also all we have time for in this week's look at modern wellbeing. We'll be back next week discussing the seismic shifts that are happening in our working lives and asking if we could actually be about to enter a renaissance of flexible, smart office design. If you want to hear more about urban innovation, please do like and subscribe to the podcast on your provider. And of course, we would love it if you shared the series with your family, friends and colleagues. You can find more details about all of our episodes and about Ballymore's new development at Mill Harbour itself in the show notes that accompany this episode. I've been your host, Jonathan Openshaw, and thanks again for tuning in.